I posted something on Facebook yesterday about a 2001 con conference I went to and um, the topic was forgiveness and I made a comment and it was recorded and it's in the transcript and yesterday I was at Leisure World in Seal Beach and referred to that and so I found it and I posted it and one of the comments on the post was well it's relevant but not profound <laughs> and, and I thought to myself yeah that's the story of my life <laughs> so I'm going to start off with a joke that I used last time but for those who weren't here last time it'll be the first time and for those who were here, you've probably forgotten. They fired a Los Angeles coroner because he kept writing on the death certificate, the cause of death was birth. <laughs> Which is fairly profound. And I'm involved with the Oral History Library at UCLA. We're doing a series of interviews. We've done three so far. Four and a half hours of talking and we've got a couple more hours to go. And, and one of the things uh, I spoke of was um, in 1977. 1977 I was 28 years old and I woke up one morning and I realized I was going to die. It was just a profound morning for me that changed the direction and urgency of my life. And I didn't know what to call it other than, wow, this is really something. That day I quit smoking. After 14 years and two packs a day, that day I quit smoking. A week later I joined the gym for the first time and started working out and taking protein shakes, which didn't taste very good, but I felt like if Arnold could do it, I could do it. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to get my body in the best condition it can be, not necessarily to live longer, but to live better while I'm still alive. So longevity wasn't in the plan. Uh, and then, after about a year or so into that, I started to meditate. So I, I, I found my way to the International Buddhist Meditation Center in 1979. So it was a couple years after my epiphany. Now, in the Pali language, the canonical language of early Buddhism, they have a word for what I went through. And I found it yesterday. And I found it yesterday because the topic came up at Leisure World. Now, for you, those of you who don't know what Leisure World is, Leisure World is a retirement community. 7,500 old people, all living together. And, and they are some of the best people I have ever come in contact with. They are bright, enthusiastic, engaged in life. I was talking to one fellow yesterday, and I said, you know, in April I'm going to be 67. And he says, you know what, in May I'm going to be 87. And I go, wow. It's nice not to be the oldest one in the room. <laughs> and that guy rides his bicycle from his home in Leisure World to the clubhouse where we meet. And I saw him, he's got his helmet on and he's riding his two-wheel bicycle, not three-wheel. It was very impressive. 
gives me hope as well that maybe at 86 I can still ride a bicycle or at least walk. So I talked about this epiphany I had and then I found this word, samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. It's a Pali word. And this is actually posted on my Facebook page. If you're Facebook friends, you can go and read this. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaningless of life as it's normally lived. A sense of one's own complacency and foolishness and having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. The urgent need to practice can grow out of a heightened sense of perishable nature of life. It can include a real feeling of shock and sense of not only that life doesn't last forever, but also that the way we have been living is wrong. It might turn our world upside down sending us off to a whole new way of life. Even if it doesn't have so dramatic an effect, it can light a fire under our practice. It can get much, it can get much less caught up in power, prestige, money, lust, and the acquisition of goods. Dharma teachings start to make real sense to us, and we begin to live them instead of just assenting intellectually. Some vega leads to a conversion of the heart from an egocentric existence to a search for, what, for that which is timeless, vast, and sacred. Now, you know, a couple people died recently. You know, we had uh, Noah's father passed away. We had uh, Glenn Fry, David Bowie, you know, Natalie. Wow. And most of them weren't 70, 67, 69. I started doing my will after I kept reading. <laughs> I'm thinking I'm next, you know. But in 1977, I had some Vega. I woke up and I just, it did change my life. After 10 years with the same company, I left them. And I did a road trip for three months in my car just to look around and see what other people were doing, how other people experienced their life and what they did, and what was valuable and invaluable to them. And I'm going, okay, yeah, I got this. I went back and I went from manager to salesperson. I just said, I can't, I have something else I need to do. And I wasn't sure exactly what it was or how I was going to do it, but there was something else. 1979, I ended up at International Buddhist Meditation Center, and I was learning how to meditate, and I was learning the Dharma. And the Dharma spoke to me so clearly, and I think because of this experience in 1977, I was ready to hear it. You know, I could never hear Christianity. Philosophy didn't mean a whole much to me. You know, I did like folk music, though. And then I'm listening to this Dharma, and they say, you know, life is ultimately unsatisfactory. And birth is the cause of your death. And if you're a religious Buddhist, you realize you've been reborn many, many times. 
and gone through the whole cycle of birth, sickness, old age, and death. So, I'm reading the Four Noble Truths. I'm going, yeah, of course. It, it couldn't be any different. I'm reading the Eightfold Path. I find out what I need to do. I, in 1994, decided to take ordination. So talk about life-changing event. Talk about changing the direction that you were going in. And not even really knowing why, other than it seemed senseless to continue what you were doing. Because it didn't lead to anything. It didn't lead to anything. So, ordination. Novice monk, fully ordained monk, community service, traveling to conferences, speaking and sharing my understanding of the Dharma. Relevant, but not profound. <laughs> and having my life just unfold in such a magical way. No no, nothing in my life led me to believe that's how it would go or, what, or that was the direction it would go in. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, how lucky am I to have so much to do and not really know why I'm doing it other than it makes sense. And it seems to be helpful to people who are suffering. So, death. This is a big one. This is one we're all going to have to experience sooner or later. But it's not going to be easy, you know. We might get lucky and have a car accident on the 405. And then we're gone. No suffering except for the steering wheel in your chest. You know. <laughs> they cover you up so other people can't see death on the freeway. You know, and then they put you in this ambulance that has very small windows you can't see through because nobody wants to know about this stuff. And in Buddhism we talk about it endlessly. It's something that we just look at as being important. Death is our co-pilot. Death allows us to appreciate the life we still have and engage with urgency because none of us knows how long it's going to be until we're not here any longer in this form. We will transition into the next form and transition into the next form. So there are five reflections that are so important. We should do them every day. It will change our life in a very positive way and it will enlighten us ultimately. Number one, first reflection. I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot avoid aging. So, how does it feel to age? It doesn't feel good at all. <laughs> you know, there, there are physical and psychological repercussions because you're just getting older. Now, sometimes, you know, food doesn't taste as good because the sense of taste diminishes with age. Your eyes just aren't quite as good and you go from single vision to bifocal to trifocal. Sometimes you can't hear stuff as well as you used to. So they have hearing aids. But to be honest with you, where I live, which is right down the street, there's a lot of stuff I don't want to hear. <laughs> so it's sort of working out okay. 
Then we have the cosmetic problems with aging. That we start to get wrinkled and our hair starts to turn color and it starts to fall out. And if we're lucky enough to have a whole lot of money, we sort of try to prevent that as long as we can. And we have something called a pillow face. I know you've seen them. Their faces are twice as big as they're supposed to be because they're injected with fatty tissue. And they're just huge heads on the small body. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, wow, is that desirable? Is that attractive? <laughs> and then every man I know over 40 has jet black hair. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, evolution going in the wrong direction. <laughs> They're getting younger, not older. And, and so we try, but when we come to a place of acceptance with who we are, other people come to a place of acceptance with who we are. So aging should be, I'm thinking, a new journey. A challenging journey nonetheless, but a new journey that our priorities are going to change. We will not do things that were really important to us at 20, and we'll start to do things that we never thought about before. Perhaps being kind, you know? Or being patient with all those young people who have to get someplace and do something, and the old people have no place to go and nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so they can just wait at the back of the line, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so aging is a challenge and, and it's the first thing we're going to do after we're young and I posted something yesterday that Pablo Picasso said it takes many years to be young it takes many years to be young so we in some cases become younger as we get older the Dylan song, I was older then, I'm younger than that now. When I was 20, I was very mature. And I knew a lot of stuff. And I felt confident that the stuff I knew was correct. And now, I know far less stuff. <laughs> and it's always in question, because I'm on Facebook, and they challenge me. <laughs> Did you vet this? Did you fact check it? Are you sure what you're saying is the truth? Well, I saw it on Fox, it has to be. <laughs> so the first reflection, I am of the nature to grow old, I cannot avoid aging. The second reflection, I am of the nature to become ill or injured, I cannot avoid illness or injury. My brother has grandchildren, they came to visit him. He's had a cold for six weeks now. They're building their immune system, and they're killing his. You know, and, and yeah, so when we start our life, our first job is to get sick as often as we can to build our immune system. And then as we get older, we get sick less unless we smoke, drink, and have a good time, and then we get sick again. And up until a couple years ago, Nobody felt health insurance was important enough to talk about or to mandate. And in California, we have to have car insurance. Now, I'm thinking, well, it's probably good to have health insurance now, too. This is not a political statement, by the way, because everybody, everything is political this time of year. But we know, we all know we're going to get sick. 
And if you get sick, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And you may not have the money. Case in point, a couple years ago, little Leo the cat was being bathed by me because he was a stinky, dirty little cat. And he had found his way to IBMC, and I started to feed him, but I just couldn't stand the fact that he was so dirty and filthy. So I was giving him a bath, and he bit me. And it wasn't his fault. He didn't want a bath. He was fine with the way he was. I wasn't. <laughs> a couple days later, my fingers started to swell. It kept getting bigger and bigger, and then the one next to it started to swell. And then my hand started to swell. So I called Kaiser. Thankfully, at the meditation center where I was staff, we got health insurance. And I said, I got a cat bite. What should I do? Come in immediately. I go, whoa. I guess they think it's important. So I drove to Kaiser. I went in. Cat bite. Front of the line. Cat bite. <laughs> They immediately took me to a room and started injecting me with antibiotics, a bag full of antibiotics, injecting me. And the doctor comes in and looks at it and says, you have to see the orthopedic surgeon. Really? Really? Come back tomorrow, you have an appointment. I've just made it for you. I went back, I went into the orthopedic surgeon's office. There was people with crutches and walkers and casts, and there's me with a finger. I go in, he says, we got to operate. I'm going to make uh, the operating room available for you tonight. You got to come in and you got to go get the operated on. I said, really? He said, yes, it can go to your heart and you will be dead. The there's many kinds of bacteria that are found on cat teeth and they're very sharp and they go very deep and you are infected. And he kept looking for this line going up my arm. Thankfully, there wasn't one. So, I go back to the center, I take a shower. I find it best to always take a shower before you go to the hospital, because it's probably the only one you're gonna get, you know? So there I am, waiting in the pre-op room to have my finger operated on, and they come in with a clipboard. How would you like to pay for this? I said, well, you know, uh, do you guys take checks? <laughs> yes, we do, okay. How much is my copay? Uh, we figured out it's uh, $1,470. I said, really? It's a cat bite. Yes, it's $1,470. That's your copay. I wrote a check out. The center was kind enough to give me $750 to help me out with paying for the operation. I go in, and there's the anesthesiologist. Now, I'm freaking out because I meditate. I said, you know, I meditate. Can you just give me a local and maybe some whiskey? <laughs> Can we do it that way? Because I had heard horrific stories about people going under and losing half their brain activity. And they come out of their vegetables. And I've been working at meditation for years now. Fine-tuning, clarity, kindness. It's all there. I don't want to lose any of it. He says, okay, well, we'll just give you enough to put you under. We won't overdo it this time. <laughs> so I go in, and I'm naked except for the gown, and I got my finger extended off the table. And, and then I wake up, and I'm in the uh, post-op room, and I start doing multiplication tables just to make sure it's still working. 
And the nurse comes over and said, did you hear that Kobe Bryant tore his Achilles? I said, yeah, she's testing me too. She wants to know. So I came through it okay. I got the final bill that I didn't have to pay except for the 1400 The final bill for the cat bite and operation and three days in the hospital, $20,000. I didn't kill little Leo. In fact, I loved him even more because he taught me a really good lesson. Don't wash cats. <laughs> How important is it to realize at some point, sometime, we will have an accident or we will be sick and we will need to go into a hospital or an alternative therapy of some sort, acupuncture, whatever is your thing, and it's going to cost you like a whole lot of money. We shouldn't be surprised when it happens, because the Buddha said, it's going to happen. It happened to him. It happened to everybody he knew. None of us can go through life and not be sick. It's sort of a bummer. So now think about the first one, old age. Remember when the Buddha and Chana left the palace and went into the streets of the city and saw four things? First thing he saw was this really old person. Second thing he saw was this really sick person. Third thing he saw, I am of the nature to die. I cannot avoid death. Well, this is a tough one because, you know, everybody dies, but not when they're supposed to. You know, you don't expect young people to die. You don't expect middle-aged people to die. You don't expect people in their 60s to die, now that I'm 60. You don't expect old people to die because they're not old enough yet to die. And the older you get, the more you realize they're not old enough yet to die. And yet they keep dying. And they keep dying. And we have 7 billion people right now on this planet Earth. And in 100 years from now, they will all be dead. Now that's a lot of people dying. I have a friend named Mary. She works in a hospice in Northern California. I was talking to her on the phone a couple years ago, and she told me in one day she lost five of her hospice patients. They all died. And I thought to myself, well, you know, they're in hospice. It's, it's not so unusual that five people would die, I said to myself. But she said it was a miracle. And I said, miracle? What kind of miracle could there be with five people dying? She said not one of them thought today was the day. So somehow, as humans, we have this wonderful little mechanism in our mind that deludes us into thinking today is not the day. And when I got up this morning, it wasn't the day. I had too much stuff to do. I had cats to feed. I had a koi pond to clean. I had to prepare for my talk. I had to get on Vermont, which is just crowded crazily today. I don't know where everybody's going. And then I had to be here and I had to, you know, so it wasn't a good day to die. I just had like a lot of stuff to do. And, and I never felt like today's the day, you know? But, but who knows? You don't know. You could eat some of that dull salad and bang, listeria. So we have to prepare. We have to reflect on the possibility that today is the day. And what does that do to us? What kind of message does that send to us? Number one, when those people call you up and want to sell you something, 
And I'm on the list now because I think as soon as I start getting my, my Social Security, they figured I'd be home. <laughs> so they are just calling me and I have viruses in my computer and they want to help me out and you know and and you know and then they all the charities call and say what could you and so for a while I was just being really mean and I just yell at them and I curse them and you know and hope they didn't know who I was <laughs> and, and now I have a really good plan that works perfectly so I pick up the phone and they say, oh, is this blah, blah, blah? I say, yes. Well, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to hang up now. Have a nice day. Bang. You know what that does? Puts you in charge. You don't have to be hateful. You don't have to be angry. You just have to say, I'm going to hang up. Because it's your phone. You can do that. <laughs> you don't have to ask permission. And then you say, have a nice day. And they're probably looking at their receiver going, what the hell? <laughs> you know? So, why is that the case? Because if this is the last day, you don't want to yell at somebody and have them hate you and remember you forever as being a jerk on the phone. You're just going to hang up. And then you talk to a brother or a sister and you have some issues with them. But then you hang up and you say, have a nice day. You know, you might even say, if you're inclined, you know, I'm happy you're my sister or you're my brother. Just because this could be the last day. And then you just go about your day and sort of realize that what don't I want to leave behind today if today is the last day? What do I want to finish? What's important? What's not important? And in that reflection of having death as your co-pilot, you are engaged in your life in a very special way. And it can happen at 20 or 30 or 50. You don't have to wait for 60 or 70 or 80. Because the people at Leisure World, where I go, they are engaged. They know. They have seen their friends and neighbors carried out in ambulances a few times a month. When you have 7,500 people, elderly people living together, somebody's going to check out. And each time they see the ambulance, they could be next. So they have 400 clubs that they've created. Tap dancing, ukulele, singing, plays. They say, it could be today, but until it happens, I'm engaged. I'm going to make something of this day. I'm going to leave my footprints behind on this day. And they're going to be happy footprints. And they're going to be thoughtful and mindful. So death doesn't have to scare us. Though, there was a commercial on TV about a football player from Chicago. And they asked him, are you afraid to die? And he said, yes, I've never died before. And I thought, wow, that is so heavy. He wasn't a Buddhist, but it was so heavy. Because a Buddhist would say, yes, I would be afraid. Because I've died before. You know? Now, yesterday, a woman comes up to me. She said, I just got to tell you, I didn't want to talk in front of the whole group. I wanted to talk to you. My husband died last year. He was sick for two years. 
He was a professional, he was intelligent, he was well-respected. And at the end of his life, they were talking to him like a baby. That death came in and took everything away from him. They took, his, they took health, death took health, possessions, and ultimately his dignity. And she said, I don't want that to happen to me. I couldn't stand it if it happened to me. How do we prepare to die if that's the case? If this thing called death comes in and starts to take everything away from us, everything we've loved and held on to, everything we've, we've thought made us up, our possessions, our place in society, our car, whatever it is, how do we prepare for that as a Buddhist? Well, the first thing we do it seems to me, is we start to practice renunciation. We start to give a few things up along the way. And why is that? Because death is going to take everything at one time. Horrendous. Take it all at once. So why not help death out a little bit by starting to give up our stuff? You know, and it could be just, I've got, you know, a hundred CDs. Maybe I can donate them and other people can enjoy the CDs that I've enjoyed over my lifetime. Or, I have a tie that I haven't worn in 40 years. Why do I have a tie that I haven't worn in 40 years? Maybe I could just give that away too. You know, and you, and you just start giving away the stuff that, first of all, that you have, haven't used in two years or three. And then you look at the value of the stuff. What's valuable and what's not valuable? You know, what's meaningful now in my life that used to be before but has lost its meaningfulness or, or value? And, and my grandfather, who was not a Buddhist, who was not a very spiritual person, he really did it in the right way. When, when he and my grandmother had my mother and my uncle, they had a two-story house on Maryland in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Beautiful, right across from the university. It was plush, the grass that I had to mow occasionally. It was real nice. And as they got older, that, that second floor became out of bounds. They just couldn't make it upstairs anymore, so they sold that house, and then they went to a one-story house in Whitefish Bay, which is a beautiful part connected to Milwaukee. And they were there, and then my grandmother had a stroke, and then she went into assisted care. And then eventually he got old, and he went into assisted care. And they sold the house, and they gave all the stuff away in the house. And when my grandfather died, he had one lamp and one chair, and a Playboy in the drawer. <laughs> But he was old school, and that's what he was. And you just go, wow, what a great lesson that is. That none of the stuff we have at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 will help us in death. None of it. All the friends we've made, all the relatives we have cannot do one thing for us. They cannot do one thing for us when it's time for us to go. That's how final death can be in a relative reality on earth. It just rips everything apart. So renunciation is a way of practicing to die at the physical level. How do we practice to die at the mental level? Well, after giving great thought to my own demise, I said, what part of me doesn't want to die? Is it my left foot? Is that what's fearful of death? Is it my right hand? How about my knee or my elbow joint? What part of me doesn't want to die? 
And I realized none of those parts even knew they were alive, let alone going to die. And then I figured it out. It was my ego. The only part of me that was really afraid to die was my ego. And I had been practicing samatha meditation, tranquility meditation. I had been going into deep states of one-pointedness and transcending ego just for a few moments. I had to make sure it felt comfortable in my transcendence of it. I didn't want it to be fearful because if you don't treat ego with respect, it will take your life over again and again and again because it's in charge. That's its job. It has kept you alive for all these years. It's doing fine. It's rather selfish and only thinks about itself, but that's the ego. So in going into deep states of tranquility meditation and maybe even mindfulness, what we're doing is we're seeing how it feels to let go of this particular consciousness just for a few minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And then it comes back, and sometimes it comes back a little more transparent, a little less in charge, and sometimes we can debate or dialogue with the ego. It's called talking to yourself. And I'm often surprised when I talk to myself and get an answer I hadn't heard before. I'm thinking, where did that come from? But that's another story. And, and so, in our practice of meditation, we're dying into the present moment. If you're good enough to practice even once a day, you have one day of death practice, and then another day of death practice. And then you go on a weekend retreat, and you have a whole weekend practicing to die into the present moment. And you realize how painful it may be to die. Because if you've been on a three-day retreat, it is a painful experience. Your knees hurt, your back hurts, you're, you're agitated, your mind thinks of all sorts of things it could be doing other than the retreat. And, and, and is that going to be similar to what's going to happen to us as we're in the hospice or the bed or in the car on the 405? Is that all those things going to manifest for us? Are we going to be able to simply observe it and not personalize it and not make it ours? To simply see the transition as a process, an ongoing process of birth, sickness, old age, death, birth. And all along the way, there are times when we're going to feel really uncomfortable and be confused and not know what to do next. But maybe we don't have to know what to do next. Maybe it's already in place. If you've ever watched one of those horrible African documentaries where the, where the lion is chasing the gazelle. When I was a kid, I just loved those. I could hardly wait for the lion to catch its prey. Now I just cry. But the lion catches the gazelle. And after a few moments, the gazelle just relaxes in the lion's mouth. It's just, an amazing surrender mechanism that that gazelle has. It realizes the only way to get through this death process is to relax into it. And that if by some chance, though, the lion loses his bite on the gazelle, falls to the ground, runs away. Immediately it's back to life and off they go. But we may have that same mechanism in us, naturally. It's it could be part of our DNA. 
it could mean that if we get out of the way, we will allow the death process to occur by surrendering to it, by relaxing into it. And what does every meditation teacher tell us to do when we meditate? Just relax into it. That's what they told me. I said, I can't. My leg hurts. How am I supposed to relax into that? They never told me. But you know what? They weren't supposed to tell me. I had to figure it out myself. Nobody can tell you how to die because every one of us will die in our own special, unique way. No two people die the same way. Even on the airplane that's falling out of the sky, all those people will die in their own special way. Wow. So what did I come to understand about the pain of meditation that could be transferable, transferable to the pain of dying? That, in fact, there is nothing called pain. That that's a concept that describes a very strong sensation. Now, what is pain? It's a really strong sensation. You know, what is pleasure? It's a really strong sensation. But we've sort of labeled them pain, and now we have a concept, and because we have a concept, now we can manipulate it and change it or avoid it. But what happens if you just have this pain, and then you turn the pain into a strong sensation, and then you come to a place of acceptance with the strong sensation. What happens then? There is no suffering at that point. Suffering happens when we want things to be different than they are. We have found a way to change pain into sensation and to accept the sensation as being what's going on right now. Nothing else could be going on right now because we always live sort of right now. So now we have this really strong sensation. So the thought that comes to mind is, when are they going to ring the bell? Have they died? Don't they know? And of course, that's the ego coming up and it's saying to the world around it, I'm in charge and I have to do something because poor Kusla will die if I don't get him out of this cross-legged position. So now I'm, you know, I found the acceptance of the sensation, but now I've got the ego telling me, you've got to get out of here. Because what does pain signify? Ultimately, pain signifies that we will die. It's the first step in dying, pain. You know? Ego takes things literally. It doesn't know that it's just because you're sitting. So it says, if you move your leg, you will no longer be in pain. For the first two years, I moved my leg. And the pain went away for about four minutes. And then it came back again. You know, and, and, and I thought to myself, there's no place to run when you have meditation pain. There's no place to go. There's no stimulus that's distracting you from the job at hand, which is dying into the present moment, even though it hurts so much. And you know, it's not even necessary today because today you're not going to die. But after a while, you sort of figure out how to just to sit with it until the gong rings. And then you go back the next day and you just sort of sit with it until the gong rings. So I'm thinking if you do it enough times that this is practice and you will be in that hospice and you'll just, until the gong rings. And the gong will be the flat line on your monitor. And you go, whoa. 
So what do we take with us when we die? Can we take anything with us? As a Buddhist, yes. Not according to Stephen Batchelor, but as a Buddhist, yes. We can take something with us. There's only one thing that ever goes with us in each lifetime. There's one thing that goes with us, and that is our karma. That's the only thing we have. We're sitting, we're lying in the grave, we got a skeleton, and we got karma. <laughs> That's it. Those really cool golf clubs, that new ukulele, that car you just got, not going to go with you. But your karma is with you time and time again. Lifetime after lifetime, it just follows you like a shadow. But see, we can do something about our karma. We can't do anything about the consequences generally, but we can do something about the karma. If we think, speak, and act in a skillful way, we are creating wholesome karma that will allow us to have perhaps a better rebirth than we did before. And some of the rebirths could go right into the heaven realm, and I know secular Buddhists aren't really into heaven, but I tell you what, seeing as we all have to die, it's not a bad concept. You know, it might be a pleasant thing to think about as the flat line begins, you know, just, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. I have a friend who's teaching at Paulus Verdi's high school. And he's in his 70s, and he's teaching part-time. And I was giving a talk in one of his classes, and he said, I figured it out. I figured it out? I said, oh, what? Where I need to go after I die. And I said, okay, where do you need to go after you die? He said, the Fremont Hotel. <laughs> and I was a little surprised he said the Fremont Hotel. And I said, why do you need to go there after you die? He said, because when I was young, we always met our friends and relatives in the lobby of the Fremont Hotel, and it was wonderful. And I know all of them who have passed away are going to be there waiting for me. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful thought to have. Whether you buy into it or not, it's such a pleasant way to check out. You got some place to go, Fremont Hotel. If you're a secular Buddhist, you have some place to go as well. You have the cryogenics lab until they find a cure for whatever killed you. You know, and you'll just be frozen for a couple centuries, and then they'll figure it out, and then they'll bring you back to life. Great, and then you'll be frozen again when you die the next time. <laughs> so where do I want to go? I, I want to go to heaven. I, I don't necessarily want to come back as a human being right away, because it's really hard to be a human being. And there's a lot of struggle, and... and, and, and People are always suffering no matter what you do or what you say, and yourself included. And I just want like 100,000 lifetimes to be in heaven. Just kicking back, enjoying you know, the consciousness and not the body anymore, and then I'll come back. Because in Buddhism, everything is temporary, and just because you're in heaven doesn't mean you will stay there forever and ever and ever. So some people want to come back as a human. They take a vow to come back as a human being. It's called the Bodhisattva vow. That they will come back time and time again until all sentient beings have ended their suffering. Wow, now that's a big vow, because that's going to be forever. You know, we've had Buddhism on earth now for 2,600 years. Are there less people suffering or more? You know, you just look at this and you go, wow, to take a vow to do that? 
we also have the opportunity of achieving nirvana in this very lifetime. It could be right now. We achieve nirvana not by getting it, not by going someplace, but realizing it's already there. We simply wake up to the fact that we're there. It would be the same thing as sitting here today and wanting to be in Los Angeles. And knowing one day you will be. <laughs> and then the person sitting next to you says, you already are. <laughs> so, it's, so we have a lot of options with our death as a Buddhist. We have 30 heavens and 30 hells. We have nirvana. We have a lot of things and a lot of places to go which may make the journey more important in our life because what we do in life determines our afterlife. We don't have grace. We don't have forgiveness. We don't have a divine being who will say, it's okay, you can go to heaven. We have none of those things. It's always been up to us, according to the Theravada tradition, which requires us to do the work necessary to get to that afterlife place we want to go to. Okay, number four, all that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. That's why renunciation is so important. It's going to be taken away anyway. Why not help it along? Impermanence, it's such a powerful force in everybody's life. Nothing stays the same twice. Every time I give a presentation, every time I go someplace, it's always the first time. And therefore, I'm always the first time manifesting in that way. I hope it's going to be okay. I hope I seem more like I used to be than I will be, so people feel comfortable that I'm showing up and not an imposter is there. But you know what? It's always the first time. And what does that do for us? That makes our life special and magical every day. Because this is the first time we have lived our life. We should be looking at it with big eyes and marveling at its complexity and the possibilities. But we just say, it's another day, I've got to go to the store, I've got to go to work, I've got to get an oil change, I've done it a thousand times before. You know? I am the owner of my actions. I am born of my actions. I am related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Any thoughts, words, or deeds I do, good or evil, those I will inherit. Those are my karmic consequences. Saying, thinking, doing. That's the karma. The consequence of that karma is called vipaka. So when I say something skillful, I theoretically have skillful vipaka, pleasant results. That's the one thing we take with us. It's the one thing we can use every day to make our life better. Have the right intention, have the right speech, have the right action, and our life manifests in a much more skillful, healthy, happy way. But it's difficult because we have the three poisons. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Always vying for power. We want to have good, we want to have bad, skillful, unskillful, good results, bad. It's always a, 
a challenge to stay on course. And that's why Sangha, people coming together to listen to the Dharma, the Dharma itself, the Dharma talks we listen to, but perhaps most important is our meditation practice because it reconnects us to our life every day in a special way. That can't happen any other way other than our meditation practice. Well, I hope this wasn't too depressing, <laughs> you know, because it's the first Dharma talk for me here this year, and we're talking about death. But out of death is always birth, and out of birth is always death, hand in hand. They always work together. There's a Facebook cartoon that I saw that shows the, um, the Grim Reaper talking to someone he's about to kill. And he says, I'm death. And the person says, I'll speak louder. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, death, life, happiness, sadness, fame, blame, all those relative two sides of the coin. Make this a joyful and interesting journey that we're all on, the journey of our life. I'd like to end with a loving-kindness meditation so we all go back out into that world with a, the right mindset. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our pets, our brothers and sisters, our friends and relatives, all the people we don't know, all the people we don't like, may they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free. The fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief. <laughs>